Welcome to the Own Your Time podcast. This is the host, Kyle Marcott, and today we have Rob Beardsley on the show. Rob Beardsley oversees acquisitions and capital markets for Lone Star Capital and has acquired over $100 million of multifamily real estate. He has evaluated thousands of opportunities using proprietary underwriting models and published the number one book on multifamily underwriting. Rob has written over 50 articles about underwriting, deal structures, and capital markets. Rob also hosts the Capital Spotlight podcast, which is focused on interviewing institutional investors. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. So you're a young guy and you've done quite a bit, $100 million of real estate. I'd love for you just to kind of clue in the listeners on the whole story. How do you go from you know where you were to now where you are at such a young age? Yeah. So, I mean, from the very start, I grew up in a real estate family. And so I was around real estate, uh, most on the residential side, but still got exposure to investments, construction, sales, and things like that. So my, both my parents worked from home. So I was just really soaking a lot of stuff up, just being at home, hearing them on the phone, talk deals. So I soaked up a lot of knowledge, but growing up in Silicon Valley, uh, the, you know, everybody wanted to, to be in startups in tech and, and make their money in technology. And so that was what my parents pushed me in as well. They say, Oh, this real estate stuff, it's hard work, you know, go, you know, go found, you know, start a startup and, and make a bunch of money. So that's the direction I went and I went to school for computer science and was, was studying that. And, um, all the while I kind of had a resurgence in my passion for investing and that drew me back to real estate, uh, just because I believe real estate is just fundamentally one of the best asset classes to build and grow your wealth. And so as I just was exploring it more, it just consumed more and more of my time and my interests. And, uh, in college, it came to the point where I just was networking and just doing so much that there was little time left to the learning associated with school. And so, um, I started, um, my business with my business partner and I met him at a conference. And so we were getting all these balls rolling and eventually there was so much momentum happening that I decided to take a leave of absence from school. And, you know, that turned out to be what I feel is a smart decision and, and have been able to grow my business since then. And that's been a, a really exciting progression, as you said, um, kind of, you know, starting young and just really pushing past any limiting beliefs or, or boundaries and finding the right mentors, finding the right partners that make up for what I don't have uh, in order to be successful. That's amazing. And it sounds like you really are passionate about real estate. And from what I've gathered, um, looking about at your online stuff, that it seems like your focus is in underwriting. So I really want you to share with the listeners today a lot about underwriting. But before we get into that, I'd love you just to put um, and define underwriting simply for, for the listeners. Yeah. So underwriting in our context is basically the financial analysis associated with evaluating an opportunity. So you can look at it two ways. One, you're deciding what price to pay for something through your underwriting, or you could decide, okay, at this price, what returns am I projecting to get? And you're just, you're determining that through your underwriting. So it's just a, it's a way to value um, the asset as well as to determine the risk and returns. Nice. That's a really good definition. And you said something important there, which was projection. So what are some of those key assumptions that go into it when you're making assumptions, when you're making projections? What are the key things to, to assume about the future? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So assumptions are where the danger happens, right? You can't get yourself in too much trouble when you're simply just underwriting the in-place financials, right? If you were just going to buy a deal and not do anything to it and just assume that the world stays the same, there's only so much that you can do to, to mess things up, right? It's where we make assumptions about the future in terms of where cap rates are going to go, where rents are going to grow to, and um, 
and where you can, if you're going to do a renovation business plan, where can you increase your rents to? Can you reduce expenses? So those are all assumptions that heavily influence the outcome of your underwriting. So you have to be very careful and realize that certain inputs are more sensitive to the returns than others. And so the, you know, you're asking me, what are those kind of top metrics? I would say uh, your pro forma rents are huge, right? If you're assuming any sort of renovation business plan, you have to really make sure that the rents that you're projecting are right because just missing it by, you know, 25, $50 can really totally turn your deal upside down. Another thing, a common mistake even is the stabilization timeline where people kind of assume they can get things done quicker than they can. And, and that actually has a big influence on the results and the projections of your underwriting. Because if you just think about it, if I can stabilize and get to my new occupancy and my new higher rents sooner, that's going to then impact the future rent growth behind that and the returns for the, for the next years behind uh, that stabilization. So those are some things to be careful on. So with the projecting the performer rents, how do you go about finding um, what the rent would be in your marketplace? Yeah, I mean, this, the simplest answer is just rent comps. And what that really, what that means is becoming familiar with the competitive properties to your subject property and going, you have to go on a deep level to actually understand not just the rents of the competing properties, but the condition of the property, the amenities it has, the you know the interior upgrades that it may have because you always need to be looking to compare apples to apples and making the appropriate adjustments when you're not comparing apples to apples so uh and then also finding more about the other income the ancillary uh charges associated with other communities compared to yours yours might be all bills paid and the competing property might have rubs and you, you know you really want to find out what the all-in cost is and compare those Awesome. So yeah, comparing apples to apples, looking for rent comps, great answers. So as far as the other assumptions we've talked about, like cap rates, you know, rent growth and some of the occupancy things, what assumption, what, what kind of factors into those assumptions when you take into account the current environment with coronavirus? If you're buying deals, I don't know if you are in the next, in the timeline coming up, but what are you kind of assuming about the current environment and how are you combating that in order to be conservative? Yeah. So this has been on everybody's mind and everyone's been asking this question. And so to come up with a, I like simple. So I, I tried to come up with the simplest solution possible and to, to still fully accommodate for, you know, the current environment and to be conservative, like you said. So the way that we've solved for this is we've tweaked a couple of metrics in our underwriting. Number one, we have increased our going in vacancy factor. So we're just assuming that in the short term, in the immediate term, we're going to see increased collection loss and higher vacancy. So we're, we're factoring that in going in. Another thing we're factoring in is a longer stabilization period. Basically, we are just putting our CapEx projects on pause and assuming that we'll pick them up at a more appropriate time, as well as projecting no rent growth for the first 12 to 24 months of any investment. So, you know, just doing those couple things. And then lastly, this is kind of optional, but you can extend your hold period. So if you were normally going to look at a deal on a three-year hold period, you might want to push it to five because of that drawn out timeline. And if we go into a recession and, and have negative impacts to multifamily, you're likely to hold longer than your base case, right? So when things go well, you end up holding for less than you projected, but when things go bad, you end up holding for longer. So um, when you do those, when you, when you increase your hold period in your underwriting, for example, you may think, well, what's that really doing? That's, 
Like why, why bother with that? And, and the reason why is not only does it potentially more accurately reflect reality in terms of you holding longer, it also reduces your IRR, right? Any deal, unless it's got some crazy rent growth factored in, any deal that is held longer will typically show a declining return just simply by the fact that in a value add, you're going to see a pop in value and then flat lined out. So if you can compress the amount of time that you monetize that increase in value, higher IRR. So just when you do those three things, you'll be amazed how much it can affect a value add plan where originally it would maybe show an 18% IRR. You do those couple tweaks and now you're down to a 12. Wow. That's a really, really well put as well, especially for the current environment. I haven't heard anyone really talking about going in vacancy being directly affected in, in collections because a lot of people are making the argument right now that like, Oh yeah, my collections haven't been affected. There's not, it's not going to be an issue. This, this is going to be V-shaped recovery. It's all fine. Uh, but I think that, like you said, it's, it's important to be conservative and I think that's um, pretty awesome. So as far as like on typical situations, cause also I get this question all the time. It's like, you know, you always talk about underwriting when all the T12s are really pretty and the rent rolls are perfect. So what do you do when you receive poor financials? You know, it's not broken into sections. The line items are unclear or you just see line items that you've never seen before. So what do you do in those kind of situations? I love this question because whenever I see really ugly financials, I get excited. I think, okay, this is a less sophisticated owner and there might be an opportunity here. So I definitely get excited and more difficult to really understand the situation. So that adds a layer of complexity to that potentially if you're going to put in the effort to figure out the situation, you know, you might have less competition, less buyers who are just simply looking at the numbers real easy and, and making offers. So the way that we approach, you know, ugly financials is number one, we already in our normal underwriting rely heavily upon our own pro forma guidelines. And we do look and take into account the in place expenses by the seller, but you know, we're, we're, we're always benchmarking that against our typical expense assumptions. And, um, you know, we're able to overcome that. And even deals that have no financials, we're able to kind of put things together and have a general idea of what's going on. Um, to your point about line items that you have no idea what they are, I, you know, I don't think there's any easy solution to that. I think it's just, we, we typically just ask the question and say, what is this and is it necessary? And just get a better understanding of it. You know, some things that that could, we've seen really a really weird situation actually, where the seller was putting an other income line that was like a, they called it damages fund. And you know, that, that fund was showing an income of 45,000 a year or something. And we're thinking, Oh wow, 45,000 of other income. This is great. But then upon due diligence and digging in, we find out that this is actually the owner's self escrow of a piece of the monthly rent that goes towards their own internal damage fund that they then assume they're going to spend on turnover and replacements. So it wasn't actually ancillary income at all. It was no income at all. It was just created onto their PL. And so you have to be careful. And I think you, we're, we're learning it every day as we see more deals. I think you see it a lot in the other income line, the other income category, you see funky stuff that you need to double check. And, um, you know, on the expenses, I think maybe on general and admin, there can be some weird stuff. And also another thing is looking below the line because people will put stuff below the line that really are operating expenses that you might want to take a look at and be aware of. It's another great point. 
Um, so as far as relying on those pro forma guidelines that you have for your market, how does one go about getting like a good idea of what a property should be run at um, as far as expenses and income in their market? Yeah, I think I'm not sure what the right number is, but once you've underwritten a, a many deals in one market, you really get a better sense of the typical, you know, price or, or expense per door that you're used to seeing. So I think that's really the best way to go. There are some data services that provide, you know, averages and they do surveys and they can provide that data. I'm, I'm forgetting what it's called, but uh, yeah, I think just being in the market and reading broker pro formas, looking at T12s, talking to property management companies uh, and looking at your own portfolio. If, if you own in, in the same place that you're looking at new deals, that can give you a really good understanding as well. Yeah, all great, all great suggestions. So what is, um, you know, what is your typical structure with LPs as far as splits concerned and, and are you doing prefs and how does that all kind of change the return structure as well? Yeah, so, you know, deal structure is something that I, I really enjoy talking about and, and thinking about. And, uh, you know, our typical deal structure is going to incorporate some sort of preferred return that's going to be anywhere from 7 to 9%, maybe even 10%. And the promote is going to be anywhere from 20 to 30%. So to quickly explain that for those that aren't familiar, traditional preferred return and promote structure is, is works like this, where investors that are investing in the deal will be owed a typically a cumulative and compounding preferred return prior to the sponsor receiving any performance-based compensation. So essentially an investor is going to need to get an 8% return. And then once they've received that 8%, then the promote kicks in and the sponsor can now start receiving some of the performance compensation. A, a difference or a nuance that can vary from deal to deal and you need to really read the operating agreement and, and PPM and understand how this works is some syndications, the cash flows can be promoted, meaning after 8% cash on cash in a given year, the sponsor can begin taking promote and, and participating in the cash flows of the project. Conversely, other projects may act as an IRR hurdle where the 8% cash on cash in a, in a given year will not activate the promote, essentially. It'll, the promote will only kick in once the investors have gotten their 8% return and all their money back, and then the sponsor kicks in on the promote. So there are pros and cons to both, and we've done both. Um, so you know, I can't say one is right or wrong, but as an investor, you should definitely be aware of what the terms of the deal are, as well as you know, why you should want one or the other. Awesome. So again, this is all a bunch of really fun stuff, and I'm, I'm sure some people are really excited, but how do they actually get to start learning about underwriting? What if I've never you know, heard about underwriting or I'm kind of new, I've done a couple, but I'm not super good at it. So where do, how do I like start learning about this process? Yeah, so what's interesting about underwriting is I feel like to some extent it's made to be, it's made out to be this thing that is really complex only for the experts. And, you know, a lot of people just say, well, just trust me, I, I did the underwriting and, and everything's fine, right? But I, I don't believe that to be the case. I really think underwriting is and should be accessible to, you know, even the casual passive investor. So the, the trick, the tough thing is, is there hasn't been a really good resource out there. And when I was learning, I was just learning by doing and, and building my own models and, you know, sourcing deals, talking to brokers and kind of putting myself out there. Um, so I always knew that once I went down that path, I knew that I, I needed to write a book and create something 
that I would have loved to have when I was first starting. And so, you know, that's, that's what I've finally been able to re release with my new book, which is the definitive guide to underwriting multifamily acquisitions. And it's the most boring, straightforward, no fluff book anyone will ever read, especially on underwriting. And, um, you know, I'm so glad that I've been able to, to write it and put it out because it's just an, a how-to step-by-step guide on how to underwrite and it gets you started on your way to understanding partnership structures, underwriting them, and uh, being able to evaluate a deal whether you're a GP or an LP. Wow, that sounds like a great book. And we'll definitely put that in the description, a link to go and get that. Um, so underneath the episode, there'll be a link to that book if you're interested, if you're someone who really wants to learn about underwriting. Because as he said, it doesn't have to be this out there thing that no one can touch. It really can become for anyone. And I think that your book's probably definitely going to help people with that. So that's awesome. Um, I want to wrap up the show with the question I ask every single guest, which is if you could give one thing of advice to someone who's in their 20s, who's either starting a business in general business or in real estate, what would that piece of advice be? Yeah. So this is an interesting question. And obviously there's so much advice and there's so many good things out there to, to learn and do. But something that I kind of came across recently is I, I saw somebody post on LinkedIn about they were giving it, you know, somebody who was young in their early twenties was asking them advice and, and their response was, you know, be patient and, uh, you know, work hard, pay your dues. And I just think that's terrible advice. I think if you're young and you have an ambition to accomplish something, it's like, do it today. You know, don't wait until you're established or you have the reputation or you have more experience you know, learn by doing, put yourself out there and, you know, make it happen. Obviously it, nothing's easy, but if it's, if it's worth doing, you know, put in the effort. So I think I'm, I'm all about taking action and eliminating those limiting beliefs. So if you have a business idea, go and do it. And, um, you know, the other thing I like to say is network really fast because networking is such an accelerant to your success and, and your growth. But when you're actually making decisions to either partner up, do a deal, not do a deal. Lasting decisions, especially with other people, make those slowly, right? Do your homework, do your due diligence. Um, you know, so it's kind of like the similar principle of hire slow, fire fast. Similar thing, you know, network a lot, meet everybody, but be slow in terms of actually doing business. Great piece of advice. And I really like the thing about not waiting until you feel established because the, the, the key part about that is even when you get all the experience and quotations, you're not going to feel ready then either. Like even when you're 45 and you, you claim to have the resume, you're still going to feel hesitant. You're still going to be scared. There's still going to be uncertainty and it's still going to be hard. So you might as well get that going now. Right. And I, I've never understood that either. And it's I think why we have a similar path of, you know, leaving school or foregoing education um, and leaving a little bit earlier to follow a different path. It's it's definitely uh, you know, because I was scared then and I'm sure if I waited, I'd be scared. And I know my parents were scared and I know that everyone who's an adult has been scared when starting a new thing. So really don't let the age thing do it. and Don't let the, the resume thing do it either. So Rob, where can people find you online if they want to get in contact with you? So you can find out more what we're doing at Lone Star Capital by going to LoneStarCapGroup.com. On there, you can click on the top banner to sign up for our newsletter and get sent my underwriting model for free directly to you. Uh, additionally, if you want to reach out to me directly, you can email me at rob at lonestarcapgroup.com. Thanks, man. Thank you for coming on the show. You've added a ton of value to the listeners and I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks again for having me.